Welcome back to Say What Needs Saying. I'm Zach. And I'm Brandon. And today we have another Say What Needs Saying Spotlight episode. We're bringing on our listener, Dan, to talk about something that's important to him that he wants to talk about on this platform. Dan was previously on an episode. He came on for our panel on mask mandates and mask use. And he was our quote unquote anti-mask mandate American. <laughs> and so we're happy to have you back and happy to bring up some some topics that are important to you and and dive in. So thanks so much for joining us and, and coming back on the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, glad to be here. Also, as you said, I, I am Dan. <laughs> um, I consider myself pretty run-of-the-mill average Ohioan. That's the state that I am from and currently reside in. So most of the gun laws that I'm used to will be specifically pertaining to the state of Ohio. Some of them uh, obviously vary from state to state. Yeah, that is predominantly uh, what I'd like to talk to today about is uh, Second Amendment rights. A lot of it specifically pertaining to what you can and cannot own as a U.S. citizen and how you would go about owning that. And I would like to start off with uh, our president's recent comments pertaining to <laughs> F-15 and nuclear devices devices in regards to their use to overthrow the U.S. government. Let us in at least of what Biden has said. Uh, hopefully people are tuning in has not going uh, from our old episodes to a new episode. So it's not Trump. This is Biden now. He is one. Explain what, what exactly he said. I, I don't have the exact quotation, but what he said in effect is you would need more than an AR-15 to overthrow the U.S. government uh, and then went on to expound on that what you would need to overthrow the U.S. government would contain uh, F-15s and nuclear devices. Mm -hmm. It was sort of a flaunt of power against the sort of anti government uh, stance that many different organizations have taken as of recent, uh, specifically Second Amendment organizations against the government, you know, <laughs> inclusive, but not limited to the Boogaloo Boys. Right. What's your personal take? What did you think when you heard Biden say that? It was definitely unnecessarily inflammatory. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sort of like poking a bear because, you know, you already have these people so angry that they're talking about overthrowing the federal government. Let's not maybe be like, hi, you wish you could. Like, that's probably not the best response in handling political tensions right now. I, at least I don't feel it is. In credit to President Biden, he does somewhat have a point. If you were to decide uh, we as this specific entity are going to declare war on the United States of America, you're probably going to need more than a few semi-automatic rifles. That is to say organized war. You know, uh, what many of the these groups are talking about are, is engaging in guerrilla warfare with the United States government, which we can see is at least moderately effective from the fact that we are now just pulling out of a 30-some-odd-year conflict in Afghanistan. Right. Sure, and Afghanistan's not the first either. I mean, you've got examples like Vietnam as well where – you know, or or the American Revolution, right? Where guerrilla warfare and kind of individuals were able to take on entities or governments much larger than themselves. But yeah, I I think I had a pretty similar take when I heard him say it. It it just felt off. You know, it just it it felt very wrong hearing the president of the United States claiming it. Not because he's entirely wrong, like you said. You know, he he has a point, but. 
presumably the only reason that you would need those that level of weaponry to take on a tyrannical government would be if that tyrannical government would be willing to use that level of weaponry on you. And so I think that you made a good point about, you know, whether or not we would need those those weapons. I think that, you know, when it comes to organized or guerrilla warfare, I think the other point that's important is what level of tyranny were, would actually be existing at that point and how much of the U.S. military is still in the hand of the U.S. government. You know, I, I think the first thing that came to my mind when he made that comment, maybe not the first thing, but one thing that came to my mind when he made those comments was that if we we're truly in an instance where the government is legitimately being tyrannical, I wonder how much of the U.S. military would still be would still be loyal to that tyrannical government. Right. Would oh. you have the pilots to fly the F-15s? Would you have the person to hit the, the button on the nuke or would they be defecting or or no. leaving? In that I don't th- I don't I couldn't imagine that at all. I feel I feel like people who aren't even in the military are so bought, not the term is bought in, but I don't I don't mean it as that. So, so so bought into the concept of, you know, the president is the commander in chief of the military. So mm-hmm. they're, you know, what the, what they pledge allegiance for, what they fight for is for still that government right or wrong. I remember granted, you know, this is not proper citation, but on family guy, you know, a, a previous, these are characters, you know, you're not necessarily fighting for, you're fighting for your men. You're fighting for your, your, your next of man. So if the next of man ideally is uh, fighting for the cause of what the, what the commander in chief asked for, I'm sure it'll be done. I'm sure Americans, you know, to choose what the battle is, uh, you know, whether it's good or bad, I'm sure that's not their choice. Their choice is to do their mission. So if their mission is to, you know, complete X, Y, and Z, push the button, fly the plane, I can see that. I can easily see that happening. Yeah, I think for a lot, it definitely would. But it was just one thought that crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I think that when it comes to... Oh, well, I mean, let's let's jump into it then. So, I mean, you know, the the comment that you had made, Dan, is that, you know, you need more a little more than AR-15s to take down the government. I think this is also one area that, you know, you had mentioned and that I think is important to cover. I think a lot of Americans don't realize what they are and are not actually allowed to own. You know, when it comes to things like F-15s and nukes, you know, it's a little more obvious that, no, you can't just have a nuke in your backyard. And I think people have a a rough idea of different guns that are or are not allowed. But there are also a lot of people that really don't, um, you know, that may even may not even know the distinction between semi-auto and full auto and, you know, other other kinds of uh, descriptors or, or classifications. So. I was wondering if you could kind of jump into some of that and kind of walk us through the NFA and and some of what Americans have the right or do not have the right to own. Yeah, definitely. So largely what the NFA, the predominant thing, it it governs a lot of different things, uh, including caliber. You know, you can only have something up to about 50 caliber. That's why, you know, 50 caliber is typically 50 BMG specifically is uh, typically the largest rifle caliber you see most people, regular human beings owning. So it limits that, but what it mostly pertains to is uh, fully automatic or select fire firearms. And the difference between that, so a 
fully automatic, but not select fire firearm would be something like an open bolt uh, submachine gun. So something along the lines of like a uh, Sten gun or MP40, you know, sort of these fairly primitive, uh, simple blowback open bolt submachine guns. Mm -hmm. That would be uh, fully automatic, but not select fire, whereas a select fire would be something along the lines of a Kalashnikov, you know, from the factory Kalashnikov uh, with full semi and safe you know so there there's a differentiating uh switch of one way or another that allows the weapon to be fired in either semi-automatic or fully automatic uh or burst fire in certain cases like a lot of the heckler and cokes from uh the 80s and earlier had that option so that that's the difference in terminology there you can as long as it fits age criteria, which is to say previous to 1986, if it is full or select fire, you can still own it in the United States. You have to go through a more thorough background check, similar to like getting a concealed carry permit, uh, but it's much lengthier. You can expect to wait for like six months while they're still, you know, going through paperwork and <laughs> making sure that it all adds up why you need this firearm. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, so after your six month waiting period and your $200 tax stamp, it's extremely price prohibitive. Your average run of the mill person is not going to be able to go out and buy even a relatively inexpensive NFA transferable firearm because the market is so controlled. There is such a finite amount of NFA transferable firearms in the United States that people are allowed to have. They fit all the criteria. They're already here. They're not imported new. The, the, the amount these things go for is astronomical. So on the absolute low end of NFA transferable firearms, you're looking at $10,000 for a firearm. And that if you can get your hands on it and legally own it, it is not unheard of to see these things going for six figures. That's crazy. And just to jump in really quick, just for those that don't have never bought a gun or have never Me. owned a gun, where where does that <laughs> where does that compare? You know, if you were to buy an AR-15, if you were to buy, you know, the average handgun or things, you know, how does that compare, do you think? Oh, um, are we are we talking about like price comparison or are we talking about? Yeah, sorry. As far as just uh, to your point about it being cost prohibitive and things, you know, when when we're talking about other guns, you know, whether it's an AR-15, a handgun or things, shotgun, like how where would you say those kind of rough average price points fall in comparison to those six figure full auto yeah. or or select fire weapons? Yeah, certainly. Um, so, I mean, we'll start off with like pistols, your average run of the mill pistol. If you're looking at like something entry level, you know, your Taurus lower level type of stuff, easily 200 to 400 dollar bracket. More expensive, uh, you're looking kind of average, like the Glock prices, you're, you're looking 500 to, you know, $800. And then fancier stuff, you're looking at like, we'll say $1,200, you can buy most pistols that you're, that you has, has your uh, fancy. Rifles, you get, uh, the, the, and mind you, a lot of this is now inflated. Right. So pretty much all like, Everything has shifted up like $100. It's like $100 more than it was just two years ago, just for reasons. With rifles, your standard semi-automatic, like entry-level AR-15, 
you're currently looking in the ballpark of like 700 to a thousand dollars shotguns are typically a little bit cheaper because they don't typically have a rifled bore they're a little bit more simple you're looking at couple hundred dollars, three to five hundred dollars, a little bit more, a little bit less. So that sort of baseline, like normal, you can go to a gun store, fill out the paperwork. And in most states, walk away same day. I think a lot of places are still doing deferments. I don't know how backed up the system currently is. I haven't Mm -hmm. bought a firearm recently. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's a there's a massive difference for sure. And it goes to your point of being cost prohibitive that you know these weapons yes you are allowed to have them but there is a lot of red tape behind them you know whether it's the cost or like you said the tax stamp and the paperwork and all of that um i think the the other thing that would be good to touch on before we kind of jump into more of the hypothetical and kind of our personal takes on things and gun reform and whatnot is kind of just give a, a a brief, I don't know, an overview of sorts of the gun control measures that are currently in place. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we can kind of go through, you know, different ones and see where we stand on them and whether we agree or disagree, things like that. at least for Ohio, too. Yeah, at least for Ohio. That's true. And I'm in Michigan, so things are different state to state. Um, And that's important to remember that these are state rights issues in a lot of cases and that well actually that's another issue recently with the different proposals by the biden administration to do federal registries or or things of that nature but but yeah i think that a lot of people you know again if you haven't bought a gun if you haven't uh, owned a gun or, or shot a gun even for that matter you don't really know a lot about what goes into buying a gun dan what's been your experience in ohio buying guns Ohio, uh, I'll make this uh, my thesis statement that Ohio has pretty middle ground gun laws. You know, we're not extremely Second Amendment uh, friendly, but we are definitely a red state in the fact you can. I mean, there's no magazine restrictions. There's nothing uh, like that. You're not limited to certain firearms. You can buy rifles typically same day. Once again, unless uh, so all the covid panic has caused deferments which typically it just means that it's taking a while for your background check to come back. So they'll call you when it comes back. But in a general sense, you can still buy firearms same day, walk out with them, you know, no big deal. Uh, What is inclusive in that in the state of Ohio is so you walk into a firearms FFL firearms dealer, you find uh, whatever firearm you're looking for. You go there, you fill out the appropriate paperwork. It is typically, you know, basic information that you would imagine would be on there, you know, name, current address uh, in Ohio. It it specifically has to be uh, the current address matching on uh, your ID. So if you moved recently, you have to have like additional paperwork saying like, well, no, this is my actual address now. And then so you fill out all your paperwork before you even give them any money or anything. They're kind of holding the gun in transit. And then they do the federal background check. The federal background check comes back one way or the other. Either you can own it or you cannot own it. If you can own it, cool, good deal. Walk up to the register, pay for your firearm. And uh, specifically in the state of Ohio, the registration is the bill of sale. 
So you own something based off of the bill of sale. If you have that bill of sale for that firearm, you own that firearm. And so then Brandon, being someone who also has lived in Ohio, but hasn't bought a gun, what's, what's your initial take on that? Like, you know, given, I mean, we haven't really talked, we've talked gun rights a little bit in the past. Um, Mm -hmm. and I know you've shot guns and things, but you know, Mm -hmm. so what's your general take as being someone who lives there, but hasn't bought one yourself? Um, cause a lot of that lines up with Michigan too. I had a similar experience with, with buying guns up here. You know, you need your ID, you need a background check. Um, there was no waiting period for me and, and it's, you know, it was relatively straightforward and simple for me as well. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, what's your, what's your initial thought or what's your take hearing kind of the process? At least for when each presidential candidate goes along and they talk about gun rights, they always talk about the process and making it more stricter, depending on what shooting may happen in the news, the, the, the process of getting a gun always comes up. And you always hear how some states make it harder and easier, X, Y, and Z. When I came out to Ohio now, I guess the way that you guys are describing it is probably the most textbook way. If someone says, hi, how would I, like if you were to Google search how right. to buy a gun, that's how you do it. When I was out in Berea, Ohio, during the summer, I think it was the fairgrounds, the guy said, hey, you got $800, this uh, this 22 is yours. So I don't know, and he had bullets and everything. Um, and I was like, I don't, I don't have, but my friend of mine definitely uh, acquired a few pieces and I was like, oh, this is, this is Ohio. This makes sense. This matches, uh, this is Ohio. So, and I was just like, okay, that's the, that's the culture. People who collect, I was like, wow, you guys have like dozens of, of, of firearms. So granted that may be like ideal best case scenarios to go through the, the background checks, but you know, if you don't have to go through it, if you don't want to go through that route. Just go to, uh, I guess, one of the the open. I don't know what it's called, but like a convention or like a fair, and just gun say, gun show. Yeah, a gun show, yeah. and just say, I want to buy a gun, and boom, there you go. Yeah, this one's a good one to touch on because I think it it very much depends on your state. Um, what people often reference as the gun show loophole mm-hmm. is it's not actually a gun show loophole per se. It's more of a private sales loophole that, depending on the state, you are legally able to privately sell a firearm to another person. I think I'm not positive. I want to say Ohio, it it's legal to some extent. I'm not positive, but Correct. yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So yeah, I mean, that is definitely, you know, another way. And I think a lot of people take issue with that um, when it comes to gun reform. That's one thing that comes up a lot. Biden talked about the gun, ref- uh, the gun show loophole. Obama talked about the gun show loophole. Um, you know, it's kind of a recurring theme and and comes up in conversation quite a bit. So while we're talking about reforms and and the process and whatnot, um, I feel like uh, can we? Yeah, yeah. Can, yeah, I'd like to hop in there and talk about that a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and also discuss one of my favorite websites to have ever exist, ArmsList.com. But okay, so going back to my statement of how the registration for the firearm in the state of Ohio is the bill of sale. Yes. In person-to-person exchanges, which is not even uh, exclusive to gun shows, this could be mm-hmm. me coming up to Brandon and being like, hey, dude, you want to buy this gun? And him being like, yeah, I'm, I'm about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, technically, what uh, is now my responsibility is to verify that he is who he says he is. Typically, you know, this is done by uh, looking at his driver's license. And moreover, your technically 
and it's more of like an encouraged thing. Like they won't hold anything against you if you don't do it. You're encouraged to run a background check on that person. Mm-hmm. With that said, it's not done. I have definitely done a few arms list gun deals that are literally just handwritten or handwritten. I apologize. Uh, handwritten bill of sales that just say says, "Hey, I'm this guy." I'm selling this firearm to this person for this amount of money and it is what it is. And you both sign it, make a copy, go about your lives. So there, there are some restrictions sort of loosey goosey Mm -hmm. in that respect that there's a lot of, uh, you can kind of just use, use your own take on the law. Um, I mean, there's not much oversight in it. As long as you have a bill of sale, it's, technically on the level. Um, And that is in person to person, which would be inclusive of gun shows, but also um, arms list. And I'll explain what arms list is. Mm -hmm. Arms list is a website that you can, in a general sense, just look to see what guns are for sale in the United States, Mm -hmm. or you can tune it into your state and uh, more specifically your city. Uh, So pretty much every big city in America is on guns list or arms list. I apologize. And so you pull that up. It gives you a whole list of everyone in the area who's selling firearms. Some are gun stores. So gun stores will pop up on there and be like, Hey, we're running a special on this specific firearm. You interested? You'd also be, you know, guy from four blocks over who's like, Hey, I'm selling this AR 15. Are you trying to buy it? This is what I'm trying to sell it for, or I'll accept these trades and the trades are what's truly interesting about uh, arms list is it is not uncommon on this site to see someone with like a 1994 Ford Ranger trying to trade it for an AK 47. And if that oh, is nice. not American thing, I do not know what it is. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, so that, that brings me to this next point. Uh, so you're a pretty staunch second amendment advocate, obviously. So what would be your response to someone that, is more wary of these practices more you know whether it's private sales or even the existence of these kinds of websites right i'm i'm imagining now so to me i'll i'll preface this by saying my reaction was that's pretty fucking cool <laughs> like that website is pretty interesting you know i i like the idea that you know trades can go on on it and and it seems like a good resource but i'm imagining lots of my leftist or liberal friends cringing at that very that very concept so what's i guess what's your response to to that hypothetical reaction you know do you think that these practices should be kept in place or do you think that you know there there's something that should be changed about any of these regulations or practices that we've talked about thus far if i had my druthers it would remain like that i i truly like this i and i i am of the opinion that more freedom is always a good thing. However, I'm also slightly jaded and it's more of a recent type of thing because you have many, many first time inexperienced fire own, uh, firearm owners. Potentially me. Possession <laughs> firearm that they don't know anything about. And it was really way too easy for them to get a hold of. So I, I, I'm... I'm experiencing a bit of cognitive dissonance on on this subject. Like if the world was everyone, like everyone acted accordingly like me and, you know, 
knew about their firearms and properly maintained them and obeyed the firearm laws uh, around them. Cool, great, grand. Let's even do away with that bill of sale. Like if you have a firearm, you own it now. But that's unfortunately not how everyone acts. And what I would like to see is sort of a base level knowledge, basic maintenance, uh, what caliber is this fire? Like sort of basic questions to weed out the idiots at time of sale. So like, it's sort of like, ah, I don't think you need to be owning this right now. You know, maybe come back once you've done some homework. And then moreover, I want to see a sort of generalized competence and range test uh, semi-annually. Like I'm talking like once every six months, you go into the police range, prove that you know about this firearm, that you're properly maintaining it, and that you're not just flailing it around doing all sort of reckless things with it because i'm i'm like scared to go to the range anymore because you see people like just barrel sweeping left and right and i'm just like i'm gonna get shot like Mm -hmm. i need to be wearing (laughs) i need to be wearing level three in here at least Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of inexperienced people that now have deadly weapons just on their person and that's a lot of people don't understand like Ohio's an open carry state, but there's still restrictions about that. You know, like it has to be unloaded. You can't have like a magazine in the gun when you're carrying like that, um, unless you have a concealed handgun permit and you'll have people carrying concealed without a permit. And that's, that's not good. That that's not a good situation for anyone. So the reforms that I would like to see are based off of, shown knowledge and competence with with the firearm that you Mm -hmm. plan on owning. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I wanted to at least get your perspective on. So you said that some type of verification test or uh, every six months or so to show your competency. Would you say that the NRA will kind of push back on that? Because I feel like from what I'm hearing in the news is that there's too many regulations. You know, Texas kind of fought back and said, you don't even need your permit to be on you to carry it's a permitless carry state now mm-hmm. so would you think that your perhaps proposal might get shot down by the greater uh the greater masses of those who are gun enthusiasts i feel like it's it's a very mixed bag of nuts uh, as far as <laughs> enthusiasts i specifically am not a big proponent of the nra i oh, wow. feel the corrupt money grab mm-hmm. uh that a lot of old gun owners just inexplicably worship and throw money at. And I mean, they are, they're the gatekeepers for concealed handgun permits. So I am personally not a big fan of the NRA due to my own uh, political beliefs. I I feel like they're much more corrupt than they do any good, but yeah, I'm, I'm certain that some elements the gun enthusiast community would push back on that and be like, no, everyone should be able to, it doesn't matter if I want to barrel sweep in the gun store, that's my right as an American. And it's like, no, that's not, that's just reckless. You're reckless and you're stupid and you probably shouldn't have a firearm accordingly. So like, that is my big thing is I, I, maybe it makes me an intellectual elitist. I don't know, but I feel that people should know at least basic knowledge about the implement that they're buying that could kill another human being relatively easily. Yeah. And I think it, you make a good point about the gun community or gun advocates being split. 
I think there's a lot that may be more amenable to something similar to what you've been proposing because it's much more education based. And frankly, you know, any of the interactions I've had with any of my friends who own guns when I was getting my first or, you know, the even interactions at the gun stores, like they've all been incredibly helpful. They've all been incredibly, you know, dedicated not only to their own level of gun safety and gun knowledge, but uh, to increasing new gun owners, gun safety and gun knowledge. So I do think there would be some level of acceptance there. I think my, my, I guess, loophole, my, my way to get around that would be my, my take has always been, well, maybe not always (laughs) more recently has shifted to be that the public education system in a country that has explicitly listed and defined constitutional rights that are for all intents and purposes and according to our founding documents given to us by god or nature's god and not by the government and so presumably are just inherent in us they're things that we have and 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 can then exercise I think the public education system needs to shift radically to better teach these things, not just guns, but, you know, free speech, due process and and all of these things. And I think that if we were to implement that on some level, like and again, I can I can imagine some of my more anti-gun or more liberal friends cringing at this idea because it would be taken as, oh, you want to teach children about weaponry? Right. But I think it's more about, you know, teaching about safety and teaching about defending yourself and exercising your rights safely. You know, again, not just with guns, but with with other constitutional rights. I would like to see what the country would look like in an instance where the public education system or other you know means trains and educates people on these things at that point to where now presumably every potential gun owner has some level of background and some level of basal understanding to where at that point, maybe you wouldn't need some kind of gatekeeping training requirements or, or, you know, competency tests, you know, you can more or less rely on the effectiveness of the, the education bef- that was gotten beforehand. I don't know. I, well, I recently started thinking about that, but yeah, go ahead, Brandon. Let me let me let me get a little pushback on. So you would say that the average American's tax dollars should I could in a, in a, in a in a world generated by the that you would learn because you said First Amendment rights and mm-hmm. and protect because I you know we we all learned about the you know Constitution and the first First Amendment you know the the Bill of Rights was in multiple grades. I don't know how much more free speech you can teach, especially in a classroom setting, but. I couldn't imagine a class or a format of a class that would encourage how to use weaponry, especially with the amount of school shootings in the United States. I couldn't imagine them trying to embrace it. Granted, kids not learning about sex, I think, didn't decrease the amount of sex happening right. in, in the United States. And I don't think learning about sex in schools did anything. Like, you know, having it taking, taken out versus, you know, leaving it in, talking about condoms in school. It's, it's going to happen regardless. I think, you know, individuals learn how to drive in school. I, I, I would love to know the statistics of those who learned, who got their license through to their high school versus, you know, the regular DMV and see if the car accident rate changed. I don't think 
I think our education system is shit enough to try and invoke any type of objective principle about around at least you know guns and weaponry like that. What kind of guns? What kind of weapon? How would you give me a rough outline? One lesson, if you could. I'm curious. <laughs> so I think. Well, I think a lot of it would be kind of what Dan was walking through earlier. You know, the more textbook regulations and rules and things like that would obviously mm-hmm. come up. But I think that's sort of where we are right now with talking about free speech and things in class. Like you said, you know, we talk about the Constitution, we talk about the amendments. I don't really, and I could just be misremembering, I don't really remember a deep dive into free speech. I don't really remember like looking into examples of countries where they don't have free speech and some of the consequences of that and, you know, what... That's kind of cool. You know, things like that, you know, a more in-depth, look at it than just you have free speech and this is what it covers. So when it comes to gun rights, I think that, you know, you would have to provide the the quote unquote basics, you know, this is what your rights are. But then, yeah, I think it would, it would be teaching things like barrel discipline and, and muzzle discipline, like, like Dan was talking about. So you're not waving your gun around at people. Um, it would be, I, and I, it would have to come, it would have to, come along with a massive cultural shift. And that's why I don't necessarily know if this is a feasible solution. You know, given the current culture of the the country, I, I don't know if there would be, um, you know, sizable pushback to it. But to your point about tax dollars, I, frankly, I think understanding like fully or really or deeply understanding the Constitution and Declaration and other founding documents like this I would much rather my tax dollars go to educating a kid on that than something like critical race theory or, you know, any number of things that are either currently in or proposed to be in the public education system. But can I hop in here real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. So like going into uh, what you said, Brandon, with uh, (laughs) your view of the public education system being shit, I wholly agree with that. Um, moreover, I'm actually of the opinion that uh, at-home learning is going to completely replace yes, uh, yes, the public school system within like years. Uh, no questions asked there. Uh, my question to you, Zach, would you trust the public edu- education system to uh, <laughs> people about like firearms knowledge and uh, freedom of speech? Like, I, th- I mean, these people can barely get math. Uh, on the book, let alone, you know, fundamental philosophical uh, God-given rights. Admittedly, no, I wouldn't, you know, and frankly, if I had it my way, the public education system would just be abolished and replaced with homeschooling and private schooling. Whatever the Dutch are doing, we're doing it. Right. And so, you know, as of right now, no, I wouldn't necessarily trust them. I would feel it would be more of a I don't know, it, not quite an excuse not to have other regulations, but it would be the least restrictive way to go about implementing some kind of training requirements, so to speak. So it's not, you know, it's not the best option. And I would like to see other other ways incorporated as well. I mean, I think the biggest part just needs to come from the community and the gun community in different areas. But I rec- I recognize that that's not always feasible either. But yeah, you know, the the public education system has demonstrated that they're not to be trusted with several different things. And so when it comes to the 
the teaching of the foundational documents and constitutional rights and things like that. I think that if nothing else, it would be a good litmus test of whether or not we still need the public education system. I think if they can't do that, then they have demonstrated that they that they have absolutely no place taking tax dollars to to fund it. Mm. Um, and if they can, you know, maybe it can be some kind of redeeming, uh, I guess, lesson plan. But no, <laughs> you you caught me. You know, yeah, I don't. I wouldn't trust the public education system to handle that. I, you know, it's <laughs> it's I, I guess just, the best of a bad situation I could think of. What was that? I just feel like it would be so half-assed. Like everything would be like the bare minimum, cheapest possible option. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I don't feel like it would be well-organized. But sort of going back to that, if we open it up so like different parties other than just the NRA mm -hmm. can step in and act as, you know, this sort of gatekeeper entity of like, the Prometheus, as it were, you know, uh, the knowledge holder. Um, if we can open it up so like private enterprise can get in there and, you know, do firearms knowledge certification courses uh, that are federally accredited and then, you know, can stand up and, you know, you can have your carry permit. Um, I feel like that would be a step in the right direction. I, I would like to see more of that other than, you know, well, you just got to go through the NRA. Right. Well, what if I don't want to go through the NRA? Well, you have to. That's like, a good, sorry. All, uh, concealed handgun permit classes are NRA certified classes. You know, there's no non NRA option is you have to go through the NRA certification to be able to teach this. And then they have to pay. So like, it's just like constantly just giving more money to the NRA when I would like to see, you know, let's, let's get some competition in there for the NRA. Like, why are they just inherently like, Oh, we have to go through them. Well, mm -hmm. why? Right. Nobody seems to be able to offer me a good explanation of why we just inherently have to go with the NRA. Well, I feel as if that's the beginning of something you can personally create. I feel as if, why why should there be a direct monopoly over uh over the the acquiring of of, of firearms i mean if if it was all ups the you know <laughs> fedex would be invented and then all these other aspects i mean if anything it, i'm sure there's a community or numerous individuals within the community of gun owners who would sign and honestly <laughs> sign with you what would yeah. stop you from creating something like that well, I suppose nothing. Um, and there, there's nothing physically holding me back from doing it. A lot of governmental yeah, red passion tape. Project. Yeah, governmental. So that would be another thing is um, the NRA is like a tick in the right. government that they're just like, when people think of gun rights lobbyists, they're, they're thinking of the NRA, you know, it's synonymous. Mm -hmm. um, so like that would be the uphill struggle that I would most assuredly be facing is, you know, sort of getting my foot in the door mm -hmm. right but you bring up a good point i had recently learned about education savings accounts and the for those that don't know about them essentially an education savings account is instead of money going towards public education or instead of money going towards a specific school voucher um, or credit of sorts basically money that is to go towards your child's education 
is put directly into a education savings account. And then that money can be used to pay for education at any number of accredited institutions, whether that be public or private or, you know, what have you. And that could probably be a really good solution to this as well. You know, I don't think that there's any reason why that portion of the quote unquote mandated curriculum couldn't also be outsourced to something more in the private uh, sphere as well. So that's a good yeah. point. That's probably, you know, a better alternative than, or like you were talking about with the, even with the training requirements or competency tests, right? For that same reason, I think that I would much rather see some allowance of going to get your test renewed or your, you know, your competency test done at a certified FFL dealer or range or something, as opposed to having to go down to the police station or the, you know, so on. So that it, again, it's just one step further away from, from being in the complete control of the government. Cause I think, yeah. you know, the gun advocates a lot of times, you know, and it comes back to our comments about Biden and, and the F-15s and, and nukes and things It the, a lot of the distrust and a lot of the advocacy against gun reform or gun regulations is that, well, the more the government has their hand in it, the more likely it is that they are able to stop or or disarm or tyrannize you if you if they if they wanted to right so there's a fine line to walk and but i think that this you know a public private partnership would be much better than a strictly public operation for sure well, and that's what I would like to see um, would be much more cooperation between we, the people <laughs> and, uh, you know, people who are putting forth legislation. So it, it would also increase the level that people are complying with these laws. Right. You know, so just because something's a law doesn't mean that someone's going to comply with it. I, I talked earlier about how, you know, you have all these new gun owners that don't know any better. So they're technically illegally carrying firearms. You know, mm -hmm. they don't know that the technicality states like you can't have that loaded. That cannot be loaded. So they're carrying a loaded firearm in, inappropriately. And that's that's not no bueno. Um, so if you have people working in closer cooperation with uh, legislators or lobbyists, uh, because we're in America and everything goes through lobbies. If you have people working in closer cooperation, you're going to have a greater cooperation with the laws as they come out because they are from the people. You know, if people are saying like, hey, I'd be willing to comply with that. Well, OK, that's going to be a successful law then because, you know, it's something that people are not against. You know, you start passing laws that a certain population, even if it's 20, 30 percent of the the population that is affected by this given law. If 20 to 30% of the population affected by a given law aren't about that law, they don't want that law passed into judition, well, there's a good chance that, you know, at least some of them are not going to comply with that law. So you're creating criminals by mm. passing legislation that is not agreed upon with the, the populace. That is a very interesting take, because if we were to take that uh, take this stance just with the gun ownership and apply it to many other laws that are passed. Uh, so would you say that when you said 20 to 30 percent, you went 20, 20 to 30 percent of those who voted in it, like send, uh, like the Senate and Congress or 20 percent of 20 to 30 percent of the uh, of the population? 
uh, the affected population. So like say it's pertaining to gun ownership, uh, I would be referring to the gun owners. Uh, but it definitely can apply to other things other than firearms. Um, I mean, let's talk about birthrights and a woman's uh, That's right. exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, I am wholly for that. I am not the traditional uh, Second Amendment that's like, all right, keep your hands off my guns and also off my daughter's body. Like, no, uh, a woman's right is, is her body. So, like, if we're passing these uh, laws uh, pertaining to a woman's body, well, I'd say that a woman should probably have some say in what's going into these laws. The, I, I agree. You know, women's right uh, is the right to control whatever would happen per se. But I think even, I mean, if how would this work if we were to plug in the Asian hate bill crime? I don't know how to properly word that, but I think there was some. You would you wouldn't say there were opposition, but if those were to oppose that bill, do you think that would be undone or any other like or any of the George Floyd bills? A lot of people disagree with a lot of uh, that came from the George Floyd case. Do you think that 20 or 30 percent of the affected population could undo uh, like the 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 choke or the you know the knee on the neck or the chokehold bills? Well, it depends on what you mean by. Um undo i mean are are you asking me if i feel that these bills being passed might cause like greater uh racial violence hmm i'm not sure i'm, I'm trying to apply it on different things but I, I it's an interesting concept that if 20 or 30 percent uh disagree with uh the the bill or law placed that it may cause it may uh call for uh, a look at or a redo what do you what do you think zach well, I think a more apt comparison to something recent would be the menthol ban, right? If you look yeah. at the menthol ban now, suddenly, if you're a menthol smoker, you're now a criminal. And same with a lot of these gun regulations that Dan was talking about, that before the law was put into place, you were a law abiding, perfectly reasonable citizen. And now suddenly you're a criminal and not only a criminal, a lot of times you may be a felon now. You may yeah. be made into a felon. And, you know, even with things that have been on the books for a long time, Look, mm -hmm. technically speaking, any person who currently smokes weed, even if it's legal in their state and owns a gun is a felon, is yep. a felon. If if you've owned if you've owned a gun while, quote unquote, using or addicted to a controlled substance, you're a felon and you potentially, depending on when you started or were using or what have you, you may have committed another crime by lying on that background check, you know, and so it's it's things like that that you look at in hindsight or or maybe you don't and that's why the laws get passed and now suddenly you know we have a situation where in numerous states in the country you can legally at, on a state level legally smoke weed but suddenly on a federal level you're now made into a criminal and i think you know with things like magazine capacities that are being proposed or assault rifle bans that are being looked at again um another time and things like that that are going to make criminals out of law-abiding citizens, you know, you can make the argument of, oh, well, you aren't really a law-abiding citizen, then you would give it back if they made a if a mandatory gun confiscation. If you were really a law-abiding citizen, you would you would go along with that, right? And I I think that to a to a point that argument may hold water with certain laws. Um, but when it comes to constitutional rights, I think that's where a lot of people have an issue. And especially when with one that says shall not be infringed. 
And so, so, you know, this, this concept of making people into criminals, not only making people into criminals, but also the gatekeeping portion of it. Um, We were talking about cost earlier, but you know, it's just one more thing keeping people from exercising their rights. One thing that has come up a lot recently is, is voter ID. You know, the voter ID has been in the news plenty lately. There, it's this idea that you are restricting someone's right to vote and you are unnecessarily infringing on that, that freedom. Now, I mean, I'll preface this by saying, like, I think you need an ID. I think you should have an ID both to vote and to buy a gun. Um, so I but I can see where the the complaints come for some of these more gatekeeping esque elements of it. Um, so we talked about cost, but, you know, outside of cost and these laws, are there anything, Dan, if if anything comes to mind or Brandon, if you have anything that that you can think of? When it comes to these gun laws, are there certain groups or or demographics or anything that you think are unduly being infringed on and that can't access their constitutional rights? And what restrictions do you think need to be adjusted because of that, if any? So there is one thing that since I've been a firearm owner, uh, It just it struck me as odd and not applicable to be on the paperwork that you're filling out to own a firearm. It asks you your race, not once, but like several times in the state of Ohio. Um, And I, I can't understand, like for the life of me. I do not know how that is applicable to gun ownership. Like it just strikes me as I don't know if like they're more likely to approve or disapprove different races. I don't have any functional knowledge on that, but I can say that the question exists. And like I said, it's not one, but it's like, they ask you a couple of times. Like, I think the first time they ask you, do you identify as Puerto Rican? And it's like, all right, that's a weird question, but all right, no. And then they're like, all right, what ethnicity do you identify as? Mm -hmm. And like, it's really weird, like that it's on there, not just once, but try, like, once it doesn't need to be on, it, it's not an applicable question for gun ownership. Like I am very firm on that one. But two, to have it on there multiple times, like it definitely it makes me think like it's applicable to someone like so, someone who is making decision. I'll, I'll shed a bit of light on that. There is a huge reason why, you know, they ask that question. There seems a huge reason why they ask it on any uh any a lot of anything that has a formal document to ask that question at least once or twice and the two questions that i think they asked a few times was ethnicity and then race uh, i never understand why ethnicity is important i understand race in regards to they get get to understand the demographic and once you understand the demographic you kind of understand the marketing and to whom of those you're hearing your uh whatever advertisings uh for that particular service or job or gun or whatever um, cause say for instance, so, uh, gun ownership is such a huge proponent of, uh, lawmakers and those who, uh, run for office. If they understand who their target demographic is for this particular type of gun, they can either lean into or back away or not hold such aggressive perspectives on certain topics, depending on who's in favor of it. So like say for instance, I don't know, um, 
a certain demographic is in favor of abortion. Whether you're for that or against that, you'll use that data to to get whatever hand you need. No, isn't no, it's not. I don't believe it's necessary, but to put everything into categories within America is something very American to do. Mm. Do you trust that that information will be used in that way? Or do you think it'll lead to more instances of things like, hey, we're going to ban menthols and under the guise of helping black Americans? Um, Because that's the thing that a lot of this boils down to to me is that now we've got this data. Now we've got this information. Let's help this impoverished or this, you know, this trodden upon group by implementing a specific policy that we think is going to help. And then suddenly you've got the, you know, war on drugs, war on poverty, menthol bans, and and all of this in the attempt to help particular groups, whether it be poor or whether it be drug users or whether it be, you know, uh, black Americans, what have you. And I don't know. I mean, I, I completely see what you're saying, Brennan. And I think that absolutely that's true as well. I just don't. I don't like them having that much information. You know, they're not good with with information when they have it. Well, no, you're right. I think that's exactly where the menthol thing came from. I think yeah. they're going to say, why are so many people have guns? Let's try to find, let's create an anti-gun pro uh, conversation thing. And then they'll ban how many guns this demographic can have because too many blacks have guns. You know, you have to you have to guise it in such a way to get to the point. So if, if say, for instance, you're in uh, I don't know, Milwaukee and you see what Chicago's doing and you see that a certain demographic, black uh, black people are starting to acquire more shotguns, you'll say, hmm, either let's relocate those who are or let's limit how many those are. So then that particular region may may get a uh, 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 an ammo limit or because you're doing so many background checks and I think you do one each one, you guys can tell me if you, they do or not, um, they would say, well, you have more than five guns. There's no need for that because, you know, these, a lot of institutions are starting to move how many guns are, are, are on the streets. Uh, I can see that being a completely realistic play. I'm sure that's probably mm-hmm. already happened. Wow. That sounds oddly uh, realistic. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I could I could definitely see it uh, going that direction. Um, Dan, one of the other things that you had um, brought up uh, before we were recording was the the old assault rifle ban um, and kind of its its failure. And that's one of the things that has I I mean, we had mentioned it just a minute ago, um, but it's it's had a resurgence in interest. Um, Biden's ATF nominee, uh, the head of the ATF nominee has come out saying that he would be in favor of some semblance of a assault rifle ban. Um, so I wanted to kind of get your take on on that, just given that it may become a reality again, that it is a reality in places like California. Um, you know, what's your thought on gun specific bans, whether it be full auto ban that had happened forever ago or the uh, the assault rifle ban? Um and then just in general, the I guess the term assault weapon that is tossed around a lot in these conversations when it comes to banning particular weapons and 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 all of that. Um, what are what are your, I guess, thoughts on banning particular weapons or banning particular guns like that? My fundamental issue is it appears to be done somewhat arbitrarily, like people just sort of just. Dis- 
they, they pick certain elements of firearms that they feel are overly tactical or intimidating in one way or another. And it, it's always just sort of weird things. So to go back to the 94 uh, Clinton era assault weapons ban, uh, it, it banned, um, it had a magazine capacity limitation. There could be no pistol grips, uh, but then also weird stuff like um, no threaded barrels, uh, no bayonet lugs, like stuff where you're just like, okay, no one's fucking walking around with a bayonet anyways. Like, <laughs> wait, what is, wait, what are what are those? How come you can't thread the inside of the barrel? Does it make you go faster? Do you think? So yeah, it was taken as so like you couldn't uh, put like a flash hider or a uh, otherwise a muzzle device on your firearm. Oh, okay. So like something that would help hide your position or dampen the sound of uh the firearm you would no longer be able to use so i.e a suppressor mm-hmm. you can't put a suppressor on a 94 uh uh assault weapon ban firearm because it it has a permanently attached um muzzle device or is just like a straight pencil barrel mm-hmm. so that's what that is um but it really I don't feel that it curbed, like I don't have any statistics at hand to reference, but it didn't really do a great job of ending street crime or anything of that. You know, it didn't stop domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, during the early 90s, during this assault weapons ban, there was actually a good amount of far right conservative, what would currently be considered domestic terrorist activity in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, see also Timothy McVeigh. Right. That that was this time frame. Uh, and I feel like that was the guise that this legislation was passed under, but it in no way stopped it. It, it didn't stop domestic terrorism. Um, it just put weird, arbitrary limits on what the average law abiding citizen could own, which in an ironic twist, all of those firearms are now extremely expensive and collectible. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and like you said, the arbitrary nature of it, I think, is what what bothers me about it, you know, because you have people and this kind of this gets back to your points on on abortion, even or, or other issues that we were talking about, that people making the decisions on some level. And I get that the extreme of this is kind of an appeal to authority type expertise argument. And I don't want to make it sound like the, these are the only people that should be at all involved with making these laws. But, you know, when you have people that don't know anything about guns or know very little about guns making these regulations, the most recent or one of the recent ones that had come up is uh, pistol braces, uh, shoulder braces for pistols. And a lot of those are used by disabled gun owners, disabled gun owners who are unable to still, you know, maybe they're older, maybe they're disabled, what have you, but they want a gun for self-defense. And so they've got it at home and, but they can't without a brace, you know, adequately aim it at the hypothetical intruder and protect themselves. And so now you take that away. And while the presumed criminal may or may not still have it because they probably don't care because they're the criminal. Right. Now right. this disabled veteran is going to get shot. You know, if he, if someone breaks in because he can't use his gun anymore. Um, the pay, the bayonets were always strange to me. You know, God, God, <laughs> God knows you don't want your gun to be more stabby. Like what, what you've got a gun, you have a, like, 
having a knife on the gun doesn't necessarily I and I get it, you know, you could still use it in certain instances where maybe you're not shooting someone. But but in any case, yeah, the the arbitrary, I guess, you hear someone fix bayonets, you run because that person is a psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But yeah, I I thought, you know, it was a it was a good topic to touch on just because we've had conversations going on about banning different kinds of weapons. I think a lot of people don't know that, you know, most gun crimes are committed with handguns. Most guns, most gun crimes are committed with handguns. And then after that, I don't I don't know the exact numbers offhand, but, you know, rifles don't come for a little while. You know, there's several, several weapons and gun types, for that matter, that are used in more of these uh, gun crimes than than are quote unquote assault rifles or assault weapons. But yeah, that brings up a nice uh, topic right there is um, non fire. So like, say we ban everything. Well, I'll, I'll use the example of 19, uh, 1960s, 1970s, Ireland, the troubles. I don't know if you're familiar, um, but like people weren't allowed to own firearms. People still had firearms, uh, but they weren't allowed to own them. Uh, so largely what they turn to are IEDs, imposed, uh, improvised uh, explosive devices, rather, um, in so much as firebombs were extremely common uh, throughout Ireland during the Troubles because people weren't allowed to have firearms. So like, OK, well, you know, I've still got this malicious intent, intent. I'm going to now put a firebomb in this person's uh, store mm-hmm. and, you know, blow it up. The problem that that creates then is IEDs and pipe bombs and like all these other sort of non-firearm weapons have a significantly higher amount of collateral damage. You know, you're not just going to kill the guy that you're trying to kill. You're also going to kill the single mother standing, you know, next to him and her two children. And, you know, the guy across the street's going to get hit with shrapnel. So it's a much more bloody affair. Um, firearms, if nothing else, are at least fairly precise. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the issue with that one is that, though, the reason why they would, well, you know, this is, we're now talking 50 years before now, but um, <laughs> just that, you know, the, if you were to have a handgun, you can, in theory, stop shooting, run a block, and continue shooting. You can't necessarily, once a, once a pipe bomb goes off, that's the extent of the damage. The damage is done. But if you say, for instance, you have a, I don't know magazines, but you have one magazine, you empty it within like three, four, you know, 10 seconds, you could put in another magazine and then go back again. I think that might've been their, uh, their rationale behind that. I don't know guns. So I don't, I don't know. If you look at the statistics of most citizen involved shootings, we're talking less than like 10 rounds. Mm. So in a modern full-sized handgun that's not even full magazine okay okay mm-hmm. so, it's more common we're looking at three to five round expenditures in a citizen involved shooting but brandon you bring up a good point that this is a while ago i mean for one this is without the american gun culture that we're talking here very right true. this the the gun culture here is very different than countries in europe and you know um was it Australia? Australia was another example that New people Zealand. will use. New Zealand, you know, but the gun culture is very different. But, you know, like you said, this happened a long time ago. Now, OK, maybe you don't turn to IEDs or maybe not everyone turns to IEDs. But, you know, a couple hundred bucks and you've got a 3D printer. 
you know, yeah. and now suddenly you can just 3D print your firearms and Stop giving you know, people ideas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me, if they wanted to, they already had that idea. <laughs> but no, that's that's a good point. But you know, these these things are out there. And I know that it's the cliche laws don't stop the lawbreaker arguments, and you know, that argument only goes so far. But there's something to be said about it. There's something to be said about, especially given the gun culture in this country. If you don't provide the legal option to own a gun, then an illegal option will be taken by plenty of criminals and then put the 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 law abiding citizens in danger. You know, it's the same argument that people will give for um, for things like abortion. Right. And I I'm a little more pro-life than either of you. But even I will recognize that we can't just outright ban abortion. That's not the way that this is solved. If, if we wanted to address it, you know, it has to come with education. It has to come with contraceptive education. It has to come with, you know, teaching about other things. You know, it can't just be, we're just going to take this away from you and suddenly expect that you're going to follow the rules. Yeah. And it's the same with guns. You know, if you were, if you are a more pro-gun regulation, anti-gun type person, you know, that's the one thing that I would say for you is that don't jump too far. Otherwise, people are going to get fucking scared and hoard their guns and, you know, freak out just like people will freak out and have been freaking out to an extent over pretty restrictive abortion laws that ha anti-abortion laws that have been put into place lately. You know, things have to happen progressively in either direction, you know, it, whether it's whether it's lifting gun restrictions or, or in increasing them. You know, it's the same for some of the things we've been talking about with with lessening restrictions. You know, the the model of incorporating gun education or gun safety into the education system, whether that's public or private or, you know, some partnership that couldn't happen overnight. You know, that couldn't just happen suddenly and people would just be OK. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll just send my kid to go learn about guns. No, you know, <laughs> you, you, there has to be the process there for sure. My toddler to Sears school. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is an important topic and, and it's why I was excited to have this conversation because, you know, a lot of people, I know that we're all, we don't really have a, a staunch pro gun regulation person on board for the conversation right now. And so, you know, maybe it's a, a little bit of an echo chamber here and there, but it's an important topic. It's something that, you know, people don't, talk about in a nuanced fashion like this it's just do we ban guns or do we do we ban certain elements of guns or do we not and that's well, about as far as it goes well, well it seems as if america will not be able to come at least within the next hundred years will not come to a day where we do not have the we, we i do not see america in 100 years becoming a new zealand or becoming a australia mm -hmm. um but i feel like there's there's got to be a middle ground and there's there's the, the balance is what keeps the, I guess, the conversation going, or at least the events uh, keeps the conversation going. Granted, initially when when you brought this up, I was like, this is a topic I'm not sure about, but this is it could definitely generate a conversation worth having and continuing. I'm, now I'm going to see what others, other gun enthusiasts I know, uh, how they feel on it. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, I want to turn it back to you to kind of cover something a little more broad that we surprisingly we haven't covered yet. Um, and I can't. I, kind of shocked that we haven't yet, but different people have different interpretations of what the Second Amendment is, what it means, what it's for. And obviously there's the legal and 
Supreme Court interpretations that wind up being the law of the land and the 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 quote unquote current interpretation of the Constitution and all that. But what if you were to say to you personally, what why is the Second Amendment important? What do you think it means? Does does shall not be infringed truly mean no restrictions whatsoever? Or like, what's your take on the amendment in general? Um, so I am typically more on the end of shall not be infringed as sort of a hard line. Um, but it's also based in sort of the relative knowledge of here's the thing. If you can afford to buy an F-15 or a nuclear device, you're, you're probably going to have the means to get it regardless of legality. You know, I mean, these are, these are not drops, <laughs> drops in a bucket. Uh, we're, we're talking about like billions of dollars, maybe not billions for an F-15 now, uh, but a, a substantial sum of money that like, yeah, if you have that laying around, you can probably work the channels to be able to buy your F-15 with a nuclear warhead. Like if, if you have that sum of money, so with that said, should that door not be opened? Like, should, should we not allow that as like, okay, well, you know, we're going to stop doing these back uh, room deals with countries giving them military aid, this, that, and the other. And you're a part of the cool kids club. So we're going to give you a whole squadron of our old decaying F-15s. And we're going to include three nuclear devices, you know, because you're loyal to us and you're our retainer in this region. And it's sort of just like, it's almost like a parent telling you do as I say, not as I do, because I mean, the U S government gives away military aid. Like it's nothing mm -hmm. left, right and center. But if one of its citizens wants to own an artillery piece and maintain that in his backyard, well, that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, and and back to Biden's comments, I think, you know, there he had mentioned something to the effect of you couldn't own cannons back in the day. That's totally not true. People owned whole warships back in the day. You know, there there is obviously now a level, a line in the sand that the government has placed to where, you know, certain things are are not OK for private citizens. Um, but yeah, you make a an excellent point, right? If if Israel can have a missile, why can't I? Kind of thing, you know. And but yeah, Brandon, what about you? What's you know? I know we've we've talked about this early on in the early episodes. I remember, and I remember we differed a little on the timelessness of the Second Amendment, where I thought it was more timeless and and should be maintained. Whereas I think you were more of the uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Whereas you were more of the opinion that you know it was maybe a a right put in place at the time and that it should be looked at through a new lens as time goes by. Well, and I think you're right that early on, I kind of had, it was more of a, off the basis of time, this was implemented to help give some type of rule and regulation to the land and that it needs to be revisited. But I think each country has a certain culture and their laws kind of reflect the culture of the country, whether it works or not. That's just the, the essence of the country. Whether that whether there's a law or not, America and guns will never separate as long as those stars on that blue part of the flag. Um, I think that there's ways to appease everyone. 
Uh, I don't see there being uh, a day where we don't have the that Second Amendment. I could see it being amended pretty aggressively, depending on where, because there's not there's not any real national kind of uh, bills kind of put in. It's kind of county, county, state to state. So, you know, I think it's going to be more aggressive in New York with uh, with how liberal, you, how loosely you can carry a gun and then uh, very loosely in, you know, the more southern states. But I think it's a aspect of American culture that you can't necessarily just right away, you know, because you know, like like you said, if you're too if you're too draconian with it, a lot of people will start hoarding guns and then you won't really know the real count. And then you won't know who really has a warhead in their in their backyard, Mr. Biden. So. <laughs> I think there's it's a it's kind of like a catch twenty two. You kind of have to, you have it because it was already written, and if you were to touch it, I think they might touch you. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down that road. There's ways to meet in the middle, but I don't see that bipartisanship thus far. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think this was a really good conversation, um, and obviously there are a million other things that we we can co- cover, and I think that. You know, we like Brandon said, this is a topic that we should absolutely address in the future as well and and cover some more that we may have missed. But Dan, before we close the episode, I wanted to turn it back over to you Um, first, just to if you have any plugs or anything that you want to our listeners to be aware of. But then also, you know, give you one last chance to say what needs saying Um, if there's any other topics that you want to jump into anything you think we've missed that is an important part of this conversation that we haven't touched on yet or something that we have that maybe we didn't flesh out quite enough. Um, I thought I would turn it back over to you, give you the floor and let you say what needs saying before we end the episode. Yeah, I gotcha. I appreciate it. Um, no, I very much enjoyed this, uh, conversation. It it went very well. I feel, um, I feel like everyone made some positive interactions with the conversation and, uh, yeah, I'd love to be back for another one. Uh, still don't have anything of my own to plug. I'm still (laughs) dragging my feet on that. Uh, but you know, maybe, maybe third time's the charm. Maybe the third, uh, episode I will say, Hey, yeah, check out this podcast, blah, blah, blah. You can find me on this service. As a present, still dragging my feet with that. Um, but otherwise, I don't know, as a sort of closing statement, educate yourself, take care of yourself physically, and uh, be kind to your neighbor. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. All this division and everything, uh, go talk to your neighbor. Like, the world's not that bad. It's just, you know, it, there's a lot of sketchy stuff going on right now, and it's it's hard to trust your neighbor right now, but I think that's the only way is uh, working together and uh, trying to stay off each other's throats because that's going to be so us being together, you know, the, the citizens of this country is going to be the only thing that, that stops any sort of totalitarian future or judicial overstep or, government overreach, which, you know, I think we saw, saw a little taste of that over the past like year and a half. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we can get a better sense of community, uh, a better educated community, uh, because knowledge is is crucial, you know, uh, an ignorant community is going to be no good to anyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, so stay together, love one another, be kind. That's, That's it. 
All right. Well, yeah, that's awesome. And and couldn't have ended the episode better myself. It's a great message to end our listeners on. So since you don't have any plugs, I'll take the opportunity <laughs> to plug us a little bit. Um, if you're listening now, check out in the episode description our previous conversation with Dan. We talked with him, a couple other Americans, a guy from the UK and a guy from Nepal about mask mandates and mask use during the pandemic. It was early on in the pandemic. Very so early. it was, I'm sure that, yeah, things, things changed <laughs> since then, but it, it was, it was a great conversation. Check that out. Um, check us out at say what needs saying on Facebook and Instagram. And we're say what needs on Twitter. We've now got a website or say what needs saying.com where you can see the full show notes and other fun things and links and everything for each episode that we post. And yeah, hopefully if you enjoyed this episode, let us know and let us know what you want to talk about. Is there something that you feel like needs saying that you don't feel comfortable talking about elsewhere? Do you have, you know, topics, whether they be politics, religion, culture, money, you know, all the touchy subjects that are super important in our lives let us know. We can bring you on. You can come on anonymously and you can have a conversation just like Dan and just like our other listeners who we've brought on. But Dan, we're super happy to have had you on again. It was another great conversation and we're looking forward to the next one for sure. I'm, I have plenty of opinions to shout at random strangers. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Perfect. With that one, guys, say what he's saying is out of here. Thanks. All right.